so uh, um, as, uh, as we've talked about, uh, it's hard to be a prophet. God told Hosea to do some hard things. God told Hosea to marry an Eshet Zanunim, and I'll tell those of you who don't know what that is, what that is. But that wasn't the hardest thing that God told Hosea to do. The hardest thing that God told Hosea to do was not even to marry a woman named Gomer. I mean, think about it, right? Happy anniversary, Gomer. I love you, Gomer. How about we put the kids down early tonight and spend some time in front of the fire, Gomer. Hang on there while I put this Barry White record on, Gomer. You so fine, I drink a tub of your bath water, Gomer. No, no, the hardest thing that, Hosea told, that God told Hosea to do was to, to take her back. So I want to bring the edge kids up to speed a little bit. And I'll say this is a PG-13 rated sermon. Last night, uh, Alicia and I watched Back to the Future uh, some people are very excited. The, yes, we've got a big anniversary coming up. It's the 21st, right? October 21st. Um, and uh, I know that there are going to be parties and special showings of the movie. Um, I was struck last night by, uh, in the age before there was PG-13, just uh, how strong the material in a PG-rated movie could be uh, back in 1985. Um, so this is a PG-13-rated sermon because of the content of the text. Our deal here at New Hope is that we do not candy coat or sugar coat or dilute what God has given us in his word. Uh, we try to make good sense of it uh, as he has given it to us, and we try to understand what that means for us today, but it does not mean that we paper over things that we find difficult or unpleasant or just yucky, like a wife named Gomer. So... To bring you kids up to speed, Hosea is a prophet, and Hosea is a prophet who is writing during the time of the uh, collapse of the northern kingdom. You'll recall, of course, that uh, Israel had, uh, after the time of the judges, Israel wanted a king. God said, that's not a very good idea. You're not going to like it. They said, no, we really want a king. God says, you're going to regret it. No, we want a king. God says, okay, like Burger King, have it your way. You can have a king but you're not going to like it. And they said, okay. So they got a king, and they didn't like it. Uh, eventually, they had Saul, who ended up being uh, a psychopath. They had David, who ended up being a, a, a poet and a deep lover of God, who also did some very, very nasty things and uh, established a, uh, an atmosphere in the court, in the, in the, the court of the king, uh, that really persisted, one of intrigue and one of uh, uh, heinous acts, great villainy, and uh, coups. Um, but he, he hung on and managed to pass on the kingship to his son Solomon, who started out really well. Solomon prayed for wisdom, and God said, that's a great prayer. I'm going to give you wisdom, and, and you know what? I'm even going to give you all these things you haven't asked for, like wealth and power and success. And Solomon had those things, and then Solomon allowed those things to be used for ill purposes. And Solomon was led astray by the desires of his heart. And Solomon also developed a massive, massive bureaucratic state with all of the expenses that go with that, that go with with lavish national monuments, that go with huge standing armies. 
and basically after his death, there was a tax revolt. The people said, look, this is ridiculous. We do not need to have this massive uh, centralized state in Jerusalem. We do not need to be paying all these taxes to support you and your palace and your retainers. And I mean, your dad had, what was it, 300 wives and 700 concubines. Lord knows what you're going to try to do. Solomon's son said, um, yeah, no, I'm going to actually make it even harder for you. And they said, forget it. So there was a, a, basically a civil war. The nation split in half into the northern and the southern kingdoms. The, nation, the northern kingdom known as, as Israel or Ephraim, the southern kingdom known as Judah. The northern kingdom centered in Samaria, the southern kingdom centered in Jerusalem. And Hosea is writing as a prophet of the northern kingdom toward the time when about 200 years after this tax, tax revolt, things are getting really, really bad. And the nation is basically falling apart. It's trying to play off the world's superpowers against one another and finds itself getting played. At the same time, the nation has also been deeply unfaithful to God. God told them to live as his people, to live faithfully worshiping him alone, but instead both northern and southern kingdoms, were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of worshiping other gods, the false gods of the nations around them. And at this point, uh, things are, are basically collapsing upon themselves. And so Hosea is called as a prophet to say some very unpopular things to people who are in power, because even though things are falling apart, there are times there where Kind of like if you're, if you're burning fumes, you think you're doing okay. And so he was the one who had to say to the leaders and to the priests and to the wealthy people, look, this, this is not going to last. All the things that you're chasing after other than God are ultimately going to fail you. This was not an easy thing to do. And as we, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the, it was a hard thing to be a prophet. Prophets were real people. This is probably one of the most important things for us to understand about the Bible that we have. This thing did not drop out of heaven in a blue binding. Uh, it did not, I mean, the onion skin paper was, was developed much later. These things used to be even bigger. But the people who wrote the Bible were real people. This, the Bible, what's bound in, in the, between the covers of your Bible uh, is, is the writings of, of dozens of different people, if not more. What you have is, things that were, were said, things that were written, and then later compiled and edited and brought together into the forms we have. But the, the prophets themselves did not just sit there and take notes as God was talking to them. They didn't say, now hang on a sec, what you said, okay, judgment upon, upon who? No, the, the prophets were deeply and intimately and personally connected to the life, the inner life of God. So God didn't just dictate to them the things he wanted to say. I mean, there are times when the prophets are saying, hey, this is what the Lord says, and I'm going to write that down. But, but most of the time, the prophets are writing out of this process of inspiration, whereas we read before in Second Peter where the prophets didn't make this stuff up on their own. God didn't say, hey, you're a prophet. Why don't you go freelance and write me some stuff? No, they wrote as they were carried along by God. They wrote by the power of the Spirit. They wrote what God had them, God wanted them to be saying, but they wrote it in their own voice. They wrote it with their own personality. And they had it rough. 
the prophets faced great opposition. They faced great persecution. Many of the prophets did not die well. Many of the prophets were ex- extremely, most of the prophets really were extremely unpopular. The only prophets who weren't unpopular were the false prophets. They were the ones who said what the king wanted them to say. And then a real prophet would show up and, and mock the false prophets, which the pro- false prophets didn't like and the king didn't like. But it, it's, it's funny. You keep seeing these stories where they keep, the king like, even knows that the real prophet has something he needs to hear and he'll call him in. He's like, yeah, you never say anything I want to hear. But go ahead and say what you have to say. And the prophet says, yeah, you're toast. The king says, great, get, get him out of here. But not only do you have persecution from the king you have, and from false prophets, you have God telling the prophets to do weird things to demonstrate what God is trying to do. You have this strange performance art sometimes that the, that the prophets have to, have to do. Uh, you have God telling prophets not to mourn when any normal person would mourn, like at the death of your spouse. And you have God even telling his prophets to do things that nobody would want to do. And that is, in fact, what happens in the book of Hosea. God tells Hosea to marry an Eshet Zanunim. And unfortunately, your translation may or may not be helping you here. At the begin- In Hosea 1, 2, chapter 1, verse 2, when Yahweh began to speak through Hosea, Yahweh said to him, Go, take to yourself a, an Eshet Zanunim, a wife of Zanunim, and children of Zanunim, because the land is guilty of the vilest Zanunim in departing from Yahweh. Now, in my old NIV translation, it says, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from Yahweh. Others will, will translate that as uh, take to yourself a, a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry because the land is guilty of the vilest harlotry in departing from Yahweh. As is often the case, it can be a challenge when the same word is, is used multiple times in the same sentence, whether you're supposed to translate it exactly the same each time or whether each, each time the word's used, it's supposed to convey a, a different shade of meaning. Uh, but, but the main thing that we need to understand is that God is, is calling Hosea to throw himself into a life where he is bound up with this woman who is an Eshet Zanunim. An Eshet Zanunim is an unfaithful spouse. This is a spouse who is going to betray you. This is a spouse who is going to fail to be faithful to you. This is a spouse who is going to run around on you, God says. This is a woman who is going to chase after other lovers other than you. And in fact, she's going to do that because she likes the things that they can give her. So, frankly, she's got the character of somebody who will give up sex for money. That's the kind of person, God says, that I want you to go and marry. And although we read that Gomer bears a child to Hosea, Jezreel, we then read that Gomer bears two more children, but the text doesn't say that he, she bears them to Hosea. The implication is that these are children who are fathered by another man. Lo Ruchamah and Lo Ami. And the point of this 
is that God is bringing Hosea into the life of what it means to be God. Because God has been betrayed by his people. And God is saying to Hosea, you're going to experience what it's like to be me. And you're going to write to the people out of that experience. As we've seen throughout the prophets, this image of idolatry, or this image of adultery is, is, is a, a vivid, painful, uncomfortable image that is used to portray what idolatry is. God says, if you are worshiping other gods, it's like you are married to me, but you are sleeping with somebody else. And in these first three chapters of Hosea, we get the personal story of Hosea going through this. We get it delivered in prose in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 we get kind of a poetic account of what this would be like with Yahweh speaking to his people. And we'll pick this up in the middle of chapter 2. Yahweh says, So now I will expose her lewdness, in verse 10, before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I'll stop all of her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I'll ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I'll make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals, to the idols, the false gods of the nations surrounding when she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares Yahweh. Therefore, we would expect God saying, I'm now going to destroy her, right? But what does he say in verse 14? Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I'm going to woo her. I am going to put on a berry white record and dip strawberries in chocolate. I'm going to lead her out into the desert and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Then she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband You will no longer call me my master. That word is Baal. You will no longer call me my Baal. I'm going to remove the names of all the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness. And you will know Yahweh. Your translation may say, you will acknowledge Yahweh. The idea is not that you're sort of saying, yep, there he is, or that you know some stuff about him. The idea is you will know Yahweh in the way that it says earlier, Adam knew Eve and she conceived, you will have a deep personal, personal intimate 
relationship with your God. And in that day I will respond, declares Yahweh. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I'll plant her for myself in the land. I'll show my love to the one I called Lo Ruchama, not loved. And I will say to those called Lo Ami, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And then we get just this very, very brief chapter 3, this first person account of Hosea not being talked about, not Hosea speaking figuratively as though he were Yahweh, but Hosea speaking and telling his story. He says, Yahweh said to me, Go again and show your love to your wife, even though she is loved by another, even though she is an adulteress. Go and show your love to your wife, even though she has left you and she is with somebody else. She has betrayed you. She has cheated on you. She has dumped you. And she is now with somebody else. Go and love her anyway. Love her like Yahweh loves the people of Israel. Even though they turn to other gods and love the raisin cakes. This is not like a dietetic issue. Raisin cakes would have been used in the idolatrous worship. It would have been part of the, part of the ceremony. And so Hosea says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a latek of barley. Not, not an, in, an, an unsubstantial amount that he had to pay. And I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. They will come trembling to Yahweh and to his blessings in the last days. So there are two things going on here. One is that God is wooing Israel. God is seeking to allure her to draw her to himself. The other thing that's going on is that God, is that Hosea, at God's command, is redeeming Gomer. And it's hard to understand exactly what is going on here, but the most likely scenario is that he buys her off of her pimp. And then what? God says, show your love to your wife again. And it seems like there is this long cooling off period. You're to live with me many days, but you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. I will live with you.
God doesn't tell Hosea just to redeem her. He doesn't tell Hosea just to bring her back into the house. He tells her to love her. You see, it's not enough just to be redeemed, but not connected. It's like getting out of a phone contract, but not getting a new phone. Gomer needed to be rescued out of the situation she was in, but she also needed to be connected deeply and intimately to her husband, who never stopped being her husband, even though she betrayed him. But it's also not enough to be connected personally, to be intimate, but to be unredeemed. God didn't say, Hosea, go chase after your wife, and then after you guys have a date, send her back to her lovers. The bottom line here is that God loves us, and he wants us to love him back. God doesn't just want to rescue us from that which imprisons us, that which separates us from him. He does that, but that's not all that God does. You know, God is continually calling to us in love. And we can do one of two things with that. We can accept that. We can receive that. We can respond to that. Or we can reject it. We can ignore God's pleas, his efforts to call us to himself. We can choose to not know. God rescues us from what separates us from him. He redeems us from our sin. And he calls to us in love. And what he calls us to do is to seek him. To seek him. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. They'll come trembling to Yahweh and to his blessings in the last days. That, that word seek has, in some places, a almost a technical sense. If you look back in the Psalms, in Psalm 27, the one thing I ask of Yahweh, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, gaze upon his beauty and seek him in his temple. Hear my voice when I call you, Yahweh, be merciful to, merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face, or it might be to you, my heart, he has said, seek his face. Your face, O Yahweh, I will seek. This idea of seeking God's face means worshiping God, means recognizing God as who he is, the one true Lord of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Holy One of Israel, the only true lover of our souls, the one who made us and who redeemed us and who rescues us and who loves us. And the only proper response to what God has done for us is to worship him, to give him the glory and the honor that he deserves 
to follow him and not to chase after any one or anything else. And none of this is going to happen if we blow God off. Two things in your bulletin may be helpful in thinking about that. The one is the delightful graffiti on the billboard in the picture. The other is that quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel where he says, History is not a blind alley. Guilt is not an abyss. There's always a way that leads out of guilt. That way is repentance, turning to God. The prophet is a person who, while living in dismay, has the power to transcend his dismay over all the darkness of experience, hovers the vision of a different day. And that really is what the Eucharist is about. And we're about to celebrate communion. And when we do that, when we take the body and the blood, when we share the bread and the wine, we are affirming, yes, we love God because he first loved us. We are able to be in relationship with him because he rescued us from the sin that enslaves us. He rescued us from death through his own death. We say we are receiving this gift of rescue, of salvation that God offers us freely. We say that we are responding to his love, that we are receiving his love and we are seeking to love him back. And in in doing this strange thing that Jesus commanded his people to do, we are giving him proper worship. We are seeking his face. And we're doing it together. So will you stand with me as we recite together the words that God's people have for nearly 2,000 years spoken at this feast at his table. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, eternally Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from